you're looking for it, it's on page 601. Psalm 88. It's on the screen. Also. Prepare yourself. Lord, you are a God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I called to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do these spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the dark, in the places of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. How are you doing? nice, cheery, uplifting. Welcome to church. I think we need to pray, don't we? Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of the Psalms. And yes, we do thank you for the gift of Psalm 88. Lord, we pray that your word would take hold of our hearts, take hold of our minds, our imaginations. And we pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, knowing that in Christ there is no darkness you have not entered into. 
for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So I want to uh, start by imagining that we're creating a greatest hits compilation of the Psalms. What do you think is going to make it in there? I mean, Psalm 23 is obviously going to make it in there. The Lord is my shepherd. What else is going in there? 139, yes, you've searched me and you name me. Yeah, what else are we going to have? 16, thank you, man after my own heart. Anyone else? 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Yes, very good, very good. 130, yes, brilliant. About waiting for the Lord, fantastic. My hope is in him. Any other offers? 139, yeah, another, another vote for 139. How many people are going to vote for Psalm 88? Colin, thank you, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. I, I, I'm sure most of us, apart from Colin, probably wouldn't choose Psalm 88 to go in our greatest hits compilation of the Psalms. Uh, this Psalm is, without a doubt, the most unremittingly negative, gloomy, bleak Psalm in the entire book. It's like spending a long weekend with Eeyore. <laughs> it's not uncommon for psalmists to use prayer to voice their desperation to confess that they're at their wit's end and they can't go on. Uh, but usually, somewhere along the line, there's some relief. There's some faint glimmer of light. No matter how narrow the crack is under the door, there's some glimmer of light. Some hope that God will deliver them. And then you get Psalm 88. Here there is no happy ending, no neat resolution, no expression of praise amidst the pain. The psalmist's last word is darkness. Literally, darkness. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And so the presence of Psalm 88 in our Bibles is actually quite a remarkable thing when you think about it. After all, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. It, it is the written witness of his own self-revelation, the way that he shows who he is, what he's about, what he's like. And yet here in the scriptures is the prayer of a human being who gives voice to the fact and doesn't hold back to his feeling that he's been utterly forsaken, utterly cast off and abandoned by God. And that's in the Bible. Isn't that incredible? He calls out for a hearing by, all the, by the Almighty and all he seems to get back is a deafening, stony silence.
quite uncomfortable, isn't it? The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that Psalm 88 is either a particular theological treasure or a peculiar problem for theological interpretation. So which is it? When uh, Chris said at the end of uh, that reading, this is the word of the Lord, and you responded, thanks be to God, did you mean it? Or were you just saying it because we've been trained over decades to say it? Because I believe that we can actually say, thanks be to God for this psalm. That we will be able to not just say it, but mean it. So before delving into Psalm 88 in greater detail, let me first just try and offer a few introductory remarks about uh, the whole genre of lament, which uh, this is a prime example of. So depending on how you categorize them, it's been estimated that about 40% of the book of Psalms is made up of prayers of lament, either that of an individual like Psalm 88 or perhaps of a community like Psalm 44. Now, on new, just numerical grounds alone, I hope you'll agree, 40% is quite a significant number. Now, Let's just try and put that into perspective. So uh, uh, CCLI, who's in charge of the copywriting for, for, for Christian songs, they compile a list every year of the top worship songs that are sung in churches around the world. Have a guess how many of those top 150 are laments. Our survey said, uh -uh. none. Zero, not a one. And so the simple fact is that lament is the most widespread biblical form of prayer that we never pray. So what is it? What is lament? Well, lament isn't, contrary to popular opinion, just a, a means of having a, a good old moan dressed up in religious language. Psalms of lament are sometimes known as psalms of complaint or psalms of supplication. They're, they're impassioned expressions of extreme emotions, of grief, sorrow, anger, but they're also more than that. You see, what makes them unique, what sets them apart from just being a moan, is that they're addressed to God. They are heartfelt cries for help to the God they believe can and must deliver them. They are statements of trust in God uttered in protest in the midst of situations in which God seems hidden or absent. They aren't just words for the wind. They're cries of the heart directed to a God who hears us in our pain. Perhaps the most famous lament is that which Jesus himself utters on Good Friday from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this complaint is at the heart of all biblical lament. It's the acknowledgement that the most acute pain of all human life doesn't come from physical illness or mental anguish, or even the betrayal of a family member or a friend. 
Now, all of those things are real and horrifically painful. But the most horrifying pain comes from a feeling of being alone, utterly alone in the universe. Abandoned by God, completely left to your own devices in the world. Oh Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? That's what Haman wants to know, verse 14. It's the experience of going down to the pit, to the grave, because because God is the source of our life. To feel cut off from him is to feel cut off from life itself. To be, in the words of Haman again, like the slain that lie in the grave. Lament is therefore, first and foremost, a protest against the perceived absence of God. And it is a protest. It's the, probably one of the, the greatest sadnesses is our failure to lament that we don't cry out against the things that are wrong in this world, the things that contradict God's good purposes for his creation. The psalmists don't do that. And in the Bible, laments usually follow a fairly common pattern. They, they begin with a call or a summons to God, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. They protest against the God whose absence they feel by addressing God directly. My God, my God, Jesus says to the God, he says, has abandoned him, forsaken him. No matter how inaccessible God may seem to us in the midst of whatever predicament we're in, lament teaches us to pray to a God who is personal and accessible. And after this opening address, laments usually then enter into the meat of their complaint, often using a a gallery of images to try and describe their situation from which they're, they're seeking help or deliverance. And as the lament continues, it brings our most pressing theological questions before God. So, questions like verse 12. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Laments ask God to intervene. And you hear time and again petitions like, Hear us, help us, save us, free us, deliver us. And finally, laments usually voice confidence that no matter what's happening, at the end of the day, God is God. He will hear our prayer and he'll act. And sometimes laments also finish with a vow or a promise on behalf of the one praying that when God delivers, I will praise everyone. I'll tell everyone what you've done. So, by now you're probably thinking, Psalm 88 doesn't do that. It doesn't follow the usual pattern at all. The only thing Haman asks of God in the entire psalm is for a hearing. Verse 2, may my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. That's the only thing he asks. 
The rest is just complaint upon complaint upon complaint, drawing upon that rich array of metaphors to describe his suffering, overwhelmed by the waves, shut in so that he can't escape, his eyes grown dim with sorrow. He asks six rhetorical questions about the realm of the dead to which he's sure he's doomed and concludes not with a statement of trust in God, but by pointing the finger at God. You've done this. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And yet for all that, there's one thing about Psalm 88 that stands out and that's worth us marking. And it's quite probably the reason that Psalm 88 is in our Bibles. And it's this, that no matter how dark things got for Haman, and clearly they got pretty dark, he addresses his situation to God. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. Verse 1. And he prays that even though he seems unsure where God is, whether or not God will save him. The very fact that he's praying shows his faith. You know what, there's a, there's a prayer that is infinitely precious to God. And it's prayers like these. Prayers when you're hanging on by your fingernails and yet you still pray. Prayers when you don't have a clue, frankly, that God is listening. When it feels like he isn't. And yet you're bloody-minded enough to keep praying anyway. Prayers that epitomize what Peter says uh, after Jesus in John 6 has fed the 5,000 and has told everyone the bread of life. Prayers that say, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It doesn't matter that Haman doesn't get around to the bit where you express your confidence in God. This prayer is the expression of his confidence in God. The fact that he's opening his mouth to pray in the midst of deep darkness is his expression of trust in God. Walter Brueggemann says that laments are religious only in the sense that they're willing to articulate this chaos to the very face of the Holy One. Theologian Ellen Davis goes further. She says, the whole prayer bespeaks a bold assumption. God cares that I'm in pain and can be expected to do something about it. That is a remarkable assumption when you think about it, which we hardly ever do, that the God who made heaven and earth should care that I'm hurting. Yet it's the only thing that explains this strange biblical prayer, a style without parallel in the ancient world. Go to the other neighboring countries. Go to Assyria. Go to Babylon. Go to Egypt. You won't find prayers like this. 
In no other culture did people pray to the high God in language that was so strong, so forthright, even rude. And Richard Foster explains, the lament psalms teach us to pray our inner conflicts and contradictions. They allow us to shout out our forsakenness in the dark caverns of abandonment and then hear the echo return to us over and over until we bitterly recant of them, only to shout them out again. They give us permission to shake our fist at God one moment and break into doxology the next. The most remarkable thing about this prayer is that it's a prayer. Given that life appears so bleak and so dark and God so far away, it's quite incredible that Haman prays at all. Over and over and over again, he compares himself to one on the verge of death, on the very brink of destruction, and he feels like the ship's going down around him. But he turns that despair into prayer. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, he prays. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Though sinking amid the storms of life, Haman is clinging on to God like a sailor in the storm, clinging on to the mast. Say what you like about Haman. By the grace of God, he knows that he can't save himself. He knows he needs help, and so he does the only thing a desperate person can do. He throws himself on the mercy of God. In this desperate prayer, Haman the Ezraites hits upon the truth at the very heart of the gospel, that we're saved by grace and grace alone. It's only when we're at the end of our rope, when we run out of our own resources, and when we realize that we have no hope within ourselves that we run to God for mercy. Haman's suffering had brought him to that point to which all who would be saved must come. He looks around him and arrives at the stark, frighteningly stark, but realistic assessment. All is lost unless there is a God who saves me. As painful as that is, no doubt, it was ultimately the darkness that brought him to that point of realization. Martin Luther, the the great leader of the Protestant Reformation, spoke of two kinds of theology. He spoke of a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. A theology of glory, he said, is an approach to Christianity that sees faith as a means to an end. It has no space for the difficult and painful things of life, except in as much as they might be... uh, Necessary but rather unpleasant step towards achieving a heavenly reward. A theology of glory acknowledges the cross but sees it primarily as a rather unfortunate step on the upward trajectory towards heaven. 
Such an approach to Christianity, Luther argues, can't handle pain. It tries to rationalize suffering. It says things like, I've learned a lot through it, or, wow, it's never a good marriage from the beginning. But a theology of the cross, on the other hand, he says, is an approach to Christianity that sees the cross as the statement of God's involvement with the world. The ultimate place where he nails his colors to the mast and shows us who he is and what he's like. In other words, the cross isn't just the means by which God saves us. It's the way in which God shows us who he is deep down. Like a stick of rock that you get from the seaside. Break it in the middle, you'll see a cross. That's who God is all the way through. Instead of being an embarrassing blip on the road to riches, it recognizes, this theology of the cross recognizes God in the midst of suffering. It faces the pain of life head on in the confidence that at the cross we see God himself enter our God-forsakenness. A theology of the cross sees the difficult thing in front of us and names it for what it is. Yes, what you are going through is awful. It is not right. It hurts like hell. It doesn't try and change it, but it embraces the pain as a at the pain as a place into which God enters and in which God may still meet us. Only a theology of the cross allows us to lament. Only an approach to Christianity that acknowledges God in the midst of suffering is able to look evil in the face and complain that it really is evil. A theology of glory won't let us lament because it it won't let us look long enough at the suffering to say it hurts. We just want to get through it, get past it, ignore it as quickly as we can. And in all honesty, we all naturally tend towards this theology of glory because we'd all rather not look too closely at our suffering. We want to think that all we need from God is just a leg up, a helping hand, a nudge in the right direction. But Psalm 88 won't let us do that. It reminds us that without God, we've not got a prayer, literally. We need more than a bit of help. We need deliverance. We need a savior. We need the God who saves me. And so Psalm 88 is, I submit to you, a gift. A precious and holy gift. It forces us to confront the awkward silence of Holy Saturday when Christ's cold, dead body lies in a tomb, utterly helpless, completely dependent on the Father for any hope, any future. And if lament was found on the lips of Jesus, will we not take it up for our own lips? For in Christ at the cross, God became God-forsaken and thus made even our God-forsakenness a place in which he can meet us. 
It's okay to admit that everything's not okay. It isn't. The world is still full of sin and violence and darkness and pain, and we see it on the news every day. We've got to recognize that and rebel against it. We don't just make friends with it. Well, it's the way it is. No rage against it. Protest. Protest in prayer. That is what lament is. Lament is the means that God gives us to be able to protest. God has given us a Bible with Psalm 88 in it on purpose. It isn't an accident. He wants us to pray when the chips are down. He wants us to rant and rave all we like. But he says, just do it with me. Rant and rave and grumble and moan and throw things at me, but just do it to me. Do it with me. And so Psalm 88 is only an embarrassment for those whose gospel is a gospel of self-improvement. But I don't think we win souls by convincing people to buy the message of Christianity because it's good for them, because they can help themselves with it. We make disciples by proclaiming the gospel through which God saves us, through which God changes lives. And I think honesty is more evangelistic than the false promises that give your life to Christ and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not very evangelistic. That's a, that's a salesman doing some rather shoddy business practices, getting you to buy the product, and then scarpering because he knows that a week later he won't be around. Honesty is more evangelistic than simple answers. You, want, you commit your life to Jesus. And it's infinitely worth it, but it doesn't mean everything will be easy. It won't. There will be times, like Haman, when you will rant and rave and scream and complain. And if the faith to which we give witness isn't one that takes account of the reality of life, it's worthless, isn't it? So we need to have a faith that's as complex as life. Through this psalm, God gives us a way of embracing that complexity. Psalm 88 is the word of the Lord. Can I get anyone to say with me, thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the simple truth that You care about us. You care when we're hurting. You care when we're in pain. You care when it feels to us like darkness is our only friend. And I thank you that we can pray with you honestly and openly, that we can take these pains to you in prayer without having to disguise them or cover them up or sanitize them. 
And so, Lord, I pray by your spirit, would you teach us to be honest in prayer? And would you teach us when the chips are down, when it does feel to us like darkness is our only friend, to hold on to you with all that we've got. Teach us in the midst of suffering to look to your son Jesus who came among us and who endured the cross so that even what seemed to be our God-forsakenness might be filled with your presence. Thank you that he came and died on the cross that we might never have to know being parted from you. Amen. So we're, we're going to, in a moment, what we're, we're going to do is we're, we're going to hear a, hear a song. And this is just a, a, a song, so it's not in the top 150, but it's, uh, it's the, the best modern lament that I know. Uh, and it's by uh, a, a band called Shane and Shane, um, and it's called Though You Slay Me. And it's a, a song that uh, one of, uh, one of the, the two Shanes uh, wrote Shane Barnard when uh, his father died and uh, he was in the room with his mother and they were just in shock. It was unexpected. His mother was uh, hyperventilating and the pain was just so real, so deep. And then as she... uh, as his mother um, was in the room, she just softly said under her breath the words of, of Job, he gives, he takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this song was born out of that deep pain. Uh, and like I say, it's the, it's the best modern example I know uh, of, uh, of, a, of a prayer of lament. So we're going to hear that in a moment. But I also just want to invite us as well uh, in, in terms of responding to this, after, after we share bread and wine, there'll be an opportunity to receive prayer ministry. If you're in that place of darkness right now, we would love to pray with you. There's nothing embarrassing about admitting or say that you want someone to come alongside you and pray with you. Sometimes it takes someone to, to come alongside you and pray with you because it is hard to pray ourselves in those times. So if, if you're in that place today and you would appreciate that, please do um, feel, feel free to, to come and receive prayer. And let's just take, uh, take this time as we listen to this song just to hear, to reflect on the gift of lament and being able to voice our prayers and our pain honestly to God.